Um, this morning, the ushers handed out a little card. Did you get one on your way in? Can you wave it back at me so I know? See, if you're on Facebook Live, you didn't get the little card. Boom. And last week, you didn't get the chocolate either. So uh, if you missed the sermon last week, I just want to let you know, we, handed, we ate chocolate during the service. And dark chocolate with caramel sea salt. And it was delicioso. And you missed it. And so I'm just saying, you don't want to miss it. So on this card, on, um, there, there's a prayer. And there are blanks. There's a, there's a line on the front and then on the back. You'll also see an empty line. That line is where you're going to insert the names of your friends that you're praying for. On the back of this card, there are five spots. I figure five spots. If, if, if you can think of five people who you know who don't attend church, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's where you write their names down. And we're going to pray for those friends. And it's my hope that you would put this on your bathroom mirror or up on your fridge, somewhere that you're going to see it on a regular basis to prompt you to pray for your friends. Uh, it's kind of a janky prayer. I wrote it and I prayed it. I went through it a whole bunch of times. I tried a whole lot of times. Janky. Like I put the word transformative power in there. Most of us don't, don't pray that way. Most of us don't speak that way. So just, just roll with it. But, uh, but right now in this moment, if you've already thought of five people, maybe you've already written one or two names down. I want to go ahead and pray with you and show you how to use this card. Um, and so, so just, I'm going to leave a blank there and not say anybody's name. Uh, and you can just think that person's name uh, right there in that spot. Are you ready? You got somebody in mind? Somebody's in mind? All right, Father in heaven, I believe that you've placed this person on my heart as someone to pray for and to share my faith with. Please give me your heart for him or her and the courage to be an encouragement to him or her. Please soften his heart and prepare her, him for the conversations that I intend, and the conversations and the invitations that I intend to offer. It's my expectation that he will encounter the transformative power of your love in a fresh way this Christmas. Please allow for my friend to hear your message of redemption and respond by joyfully surrendering to your love. Thank you for the opportunity to be your hands and feet. Amen. All right. So my challenge to you is to do this on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And you can make it, you can add as many names as you want to it. It's certainly not limited to five, but at least five. I had a really funny conversation with somebody in the lobby uh, last week. Uh, in, in it, um, but we were talking about uh, other churches in the community. And he, he was jabbing at me and he's like, he, he jokingly referred to another church as our competition. And it was, it was really, really funny. But, uh, but I just want to, I want to take that moment to, to highlight something of our, of our value. What we're not trying to do with Christmas Eve. Now, if you've got a friend who has, goes to another church or in, in from out of town and they don't have a Christmas Eve service or they can't make it to their church, absolutely invite them. But our goal is in no way, shape or form to win people from, you know, the church down the street. You know, because cause we, we don't have anything that they don't have, right? It, the, if anybody preaches the gospel, they are our friend, Amen. right? And we're not looking to win people from another church. We're, I mean, it's easier that way. It's like less intimidating, right? It's like, you go to church, right? Yeah, well, come to my church, you know, like, because it does take a lot of courage, doesn't it, to, to have that conversation with people? Cause, and, and I'll tell you, even as a pastor, I, I've had this conversation a couple times this week where it was like, Oh man, am I really going to do it? Am I really going to do it? Am I really going to do it? And then, you know, you're like, here we go. You know, and it's terrifying. And so I just want to acknowledge that, yes, this is a hard thing to do. 
Um, but we, it's a privilege to participate with God and being in his hands and feet and sharing the good news with our friends, even though it's hard. It's worth it. Um, when, um, when President Kennedy talked about going to the moon, he said, we will do this because it's hard. And I just thought, man, that's what a great way to just work against uh, what, would, what would naturally slow us down. Just say, it's hard, and that's why I'm going to do it. So I would encourage you, yes, it's hard but let's do it nonetheless. So uh, we're in the process of celebrating during this Advent season, the coming of Jesus. And um, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet. That means that he, he was a mouthpiece for God during a time that God spoke through individuals. So now we, now God certainly uses individuals, but he, he does, he's poured out his Holy Spirit so that we could all have uh, revelation. So he speaks to you and he, he challenges you and he, and he, um, and he, he draws you to himself uh, by his Holy Spirit. But at that time he would anoint a man or woman of God as a, as a prophet to proclaim his, his, his message to the people. Isaiah was a writing prophet, and he wrote more than any of the other prophets. So we've got a really strong record of the various prophecies that he gave in his ministry. He, he lived and prophesied from about 740 B.C. to about 686 B.C. This was the time when Assyria was encroaching on, on Israel. It was, Assyria was, in, it was starting to take land and they were starting to grow and taking up other nations. And, and at this time, they would have started to have crept into Israel. And, and Isaiah springs on the scene and he's going, he's normally a prophet to Judah. He's normally a prophet down south, but now he's prophesying to this kingdom in the north, to Israel. And he's bringing this message to these people who are terrified because they're going to be overrun. You ever felt like you were terrified to be overrun? You just, you know that your debt was going to destroy you. You knew that, you knew that the situation that you were facing was going to be too much for you. That's where these people were. And and Isaiah comes on the scene and he says this. Actually, this is a part of what he said. There's more. We're starting in chapter nine, right? He says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he being God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor you have oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is God's word to us today. Father, help us. Open our eyes to see our ears, to hear our hearts, to comprehend what you've done and what you desire to do in us and for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. My intent today is to be an encouragement. Uh, I want to look at this passage because you can tell that that it's really encouraging. But before we get there, I want to acknowledge an uncomfortable truth that's nested in in the first couple verses that that I read this morning. 
we see that he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. Did anybody else see that? Did you wonder about it a little bit? I know that that's one of those awkward ideas that God would deal with anybody with contempt. And, and I was like, well, so let's just acknowledge the awkward right off the top. Because it sets the stage for the rest of the passage and the rest of the beauty of what God did. He treated these lands with contempt. Most of us want to hear about sweet baby Jesus during Christmas, right? Because he's a safe Jesus. It's an innocent Jesus. It's a Jesus that we can control. It's a Jesus that we can hold and look at and admire. It's a Jesus that's passive. But that baby Jesus that was born in a, in a, in a stall, placed in a manger likely, this, this baby Jesus was God. The Bible tells us that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So all of the power of God, all of the creative power of the universe existed in this small child. And so when we see this frail, small baby, and on Christmas Eve, we're going to have a, we're going to have a nativity scene and we're going to have Mary Joseph and a, and a baby Jesus. And, and it's, it's going to look and it's going, we're going to look and we're going to be like, oh, that is so precious and it's so sweet and it's so tender. But that sweet, tender baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. It's an old reference to a movie that I'm not going to say the title of. That eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. So soft in its manger was the living God. The kids in kids ministry last week were wrestling with this idea that the fullness of God dwelled in a baby. And our elementary schoolers are like, it's amazing. And Larry was telling me after the service, he said, the kids came to the conclusion that it was any other baby holding the fullness of God. Baby would go boom. And I was like, they got it. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in an infant. And he sacrificed his divine right and his divine power that was at his access. When Jesus would eventually be dying on the cross, he's like, I could call down legions of angels. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be led by and cared for by people, by his own creation. A teenage girl at that. God didn't treat these cities, these people with contempt because he was cranky or in a bad mood. In the previous chapter, in chapter 8, we learn why these, these people were treated with contempt. Basically, that when God spoke to them softly, they rejected him. It says it this way in chapter 8, the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, Therefore, behold, the Lord is, because you rejected 
when he spoke to you as the waters of Shiloh, uh, and the, uh, that the waters that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against you the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. I read that badly, but what, what's being said is that when I tried to come to you and give you revelation through gentle streams, you rejected it. So now the full river of judgment is going to come to you. God saw the, the trajectory of their rebellion and knew that it was going to end in death and he was unsatisfied for those people to leave it there because he wants greater for them than death. And he will do what's devastating and difficult in the short term to accomplish what is righteous and best in the long term. God is obligated to judge sin by virtue of being God. I know for me, I, I would, I get tired and I don't want to, you know, like, don't do that again. You know, I'll be in the kitchen and be like, don't do that again. And then they'll do it again. And I'm like, or again. I'm not trying to discipline. But it's because I'm frail and weak. I'm inconsistent. I'm unjust. But God in his justice and his righteousness can't let sin go unpunished. So he has to deal with it and he has to deal with it permanently. I'm sure the people, it took, it took 20 years between the, between the time that really we see that this prophecy probably came and the time that it, it actually occurred. And I'm sure the people who were sinning were kind of like, oh, he hasn't ended us yet. I mean, it's kind of inconvenient. But the Assyrians, I mean, they're not all that bad. We can still kind of, I mean, life is life, right? Life was already kind of hard. So it's just going to be kind of hard under, under a different regime. And I think sometimes with our, with our lives, we can we can get comfortable with our sin because God hasn't judged us yet. Oh, I've been unforgiving so far and I'm still okay. I've been stealing. I've been stealing for a while and God hasn't judged me. I mean, I'm uncomfortable, but, it, it, but I'm, still, I'm still doing okay. And, I, and we can feel like things are, things are all right. God must be okay with me. He must be maybe even be pleased with me despite my actions. That time between when God warns us and that time that we experience judgment is intended for us to turn towards him. He's given us opportunity to say, God, I'm so sorry that I've been doing it my way. I surrender, I'll follow you. This same period of time can be the same time where you decide, you know what, I'm committed to myself. And I'm going to do things my way. So this is the difficulty of God. And so in the midst of this Christmas season, we celebrate that joy has come. We celebrate that peace has come. We celebrate uh, Emmanuel, God with us. But we need to make sure that we don't imagine a great, powerful God that used to exist in a, a sweet, peaceful baby Jesus God that, that gives us what we want or that we can control. You with me? 
Because it's with those things in mind that these promises make sense. It's, it's, it's with the fact that Jesus is all powerful in mind that these, these next promises that we can celebrate these things. God wasn't satisfied with judgment being the end of the story. At this point, he's saying judgment's going to come and it's going to be awful, but it's to produce righteousness. And God doesn't have to forfeit his righteousness to, to, to judge. It's, it's, it is an expression of his righteousness to judge. Okay, so, but with God, this isn't the end of the story because he wasn't satisfied with the people living in darkness. And so he makes these promises. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In other words, if you're just passing through, there's going to be a light that shines, that shows you the way out. You know, you just kind of, you just kind of wander in. Anybody ever been depressed? Depression is awful. When, if you're depressed, you're like, you can't even imagine a way that it could be good. It's like, imagine not being addicted. It's like, I don't know if I can imagine not being addicted. But for some of us, if we're just, if we're just passing through, we're like, I'm having kind of a tough moment. If you're having kind of a tough moment, the light of God is going to appear for you and lead you out. And give you a place to aim at. Give you a place to long for, to go towards, to embrace. But for those of us who are living in darkness, or, or the Hebrew word there, it talks about sitting down. For some of us, we, we, got, we, got, we walked in darkness and we got scared or complicated or confused or overwhelmed. We bumped into things and then we just sat down. We just, we just, we're just in darkness. I wasn't planning this. We're just, we're just in darkness. I can't imagine a way out. I don't even know what to do. I don't know what would be next. Anybody ever been there? So addicted, you can't imagine a life not addicted. So depressed, you can't imagine a life not depressed. Just the pastor, okay? Some people on that side of the room we're in this club. These people have never experienced anything like that at all. So if you need prayer, go to these people. Uh, because they'll have compassion. <laughs> you know, there's no extra credit for, uh, not having sinned. Uh, there's, there's no extra credit for not having sinned. The reason is because all have sinned. And, and if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar. And so it's kind of like the opposite of... So if you haven't sinned, you're a liar. And so it's like you're doubling down on your sin. I thought of a really a lot of examples right away. And I'm not going to share any of them. Has anybody else wondered if this is actually on the stream? Probably off screen. Oh, it's on there. Cool. If you're watching the live stream, you can click like. That's like an amen in Facebook language. Um, what are we talking about? Oh, sitting down in darkness. Can't even imagine a way out. You're stuck. It says that the light of God will shine on you. A great light. The word that's being used here for light is the same word that exists in Genesis when God created the light. A great light will shine on you. 
This light is not a result of you. It is a light that will shine on you because God. Because of God's love and his compassion and his mercy and his unwillingness to leave you where you are. The light will shine on you and the light brings with it some benefits. It gives you perspective. It helps you see things for what they really are. You ever been in a, in a, in a really dark place and you kind of forget where you are? And then the lights come on and you're like, oh, that's what's happening right now. Or like you're in a movie theater and you forget that it's daylight. You ever done that, gone to a matinee? And you go in and you're like, oh, it's all dark. And then you're inside and then you walk outside and you're like, oh, it's still summer. <laughs> I'm in Virginia. I've got a short-term memory problem, apparently. The light will chase off the monsters that seek to destroy you in the darkness. When my, when my kids think that there's something in the room, all you got to do is turn the light on. You realize there's nothing in the room. The light chases it off. The light will also expose things that are wrong with you. So it's not just about exposing what's wrong with everything else. Don't you wish the light came on and told you what's wrong with everybody else? And you're like, and that's why I am the way that I am. Because everybody else is crazy. When the light turns on, certainly it'll expose the, the plan of the enemy. A devil that would love to destroy you, but the light's going to come on. And it's also going to reveal your own imperfections, your own sin and your own rebellion as well. That's why when the light turns on, it's kind of like, yay, oh, Get out of here, devil. And oh, that's me. I made that choice. If I was a, if I was a campus minister, I would, right now, I would talk about how life is at the club. If I was still a campus minister, I'd talk about how you're dancing all night and the lights are low. And you, if I was a campus minister, only if, if I was still a campus minister, and I talk about how the music's going and everything's crazy and you've been partying and you just kind of, your inhibitions are off. You know, and you're just going crazy and you're dancing and you're, you're dancing with this person who's beautiful, they're stunning, they're gorgeous. And they'll be like, they, they, you cannot wait to spend the rest of your life with them and it's going to be amazing. And then they turn on the lights at two o'clock and you're like, whoa. <laughs> That's what I would say if I was a campus minister, but I'm not a campus minister anymore. Because the person's more beautiful than, they re- than you really expected. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm not fooling. Somebody's been to the club. You told on yourself. But the light turns on. And, you know, sometimes in the darkness, we've been dancing with the devil all day long. And then the light comes on. And we think, we think, we think we're all right. We're sitting here and we're like, oh, yeah, I love this. This is great for me. Pornography is great for me. Alcohol is great for me. This hatred towards my neighbor is great for me. This unforgiveness is great for me. It's working for me. We're dancing, baby. We're dancing, baby. And the light turns on and you're like, oh, my gosh, you've been sin. And when the light comes on, we've got to make a choice. Shut the light off. (laughs) All right, I'm done dancing. I'm done dancing. God cuts this light on. 
because of his grace and his mercy towards us. It brings healing, hope, guidance, direction, warmth. It says that our joy will be increased. Some translations say we'll be overcome with gladness because God saw fit to reach down and redeem us. This is another way that God is different than us, isn't it? You know, it's, it's like if, if I warn you about something, you know, it's like, I warned you. I warned, oh, fine, go ahead. Use that knife backwards. <laughs> clean up your mess. God's like, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. And we charge off headlong into what he warned us against. Then he comes after us. There is a time where he doesn't come after us anymore. But it's really important to respond well when the light does come on. It says that our joy will be increased as with the joy of the harvest. It actually happened. You know, has anybody ever spent time on a farm? I got to visit farms in middle school and high school. My, my uncle lived in a small town and he loaned me out to the farmers for a few days to just kind of show me how little I knew about life. And I learned a lot of lessons on the farm in just a few short days. But I, I can imagine the joy of a farmer after they've received the harvest. I got to see it for the wheat harvest. You know, it's kind of like you finish, you finish collecting everything, the combine's in, you've sold all your stuff, and then there's this kind of, whew, it worked. We got this payday. But for us, the increase of our joy isn't because of our own labors. It's because of the labors that Jesus toiled on our behalf and we receive his harvest instead of our own harvest. I deserve a harvest of filth and death. That's just, I'm just me and JC. So you got a pastor and an elder and an elder son. This side of the room is finally starting to get messed up with us. But that's, that's the harvest that I deserve to, to bring in. But because of Jesus and what he did on our behalf, we get to reap a harvest of righteousness. And then it says our, our joy will increase as, as the soldiers, when they divide the spoil of war. They'll have new possessions and they're excited about that. And as they divide their new possessions because of the spoils of war, they'll remember the battle. Oh yeah, this happened over here. And did you see that over there? I did like a double backflip and, you know, did all these amazing things. And too bad there wasn't a, a film camera there, like a camera crew there to, to capture my, my awesomeness. And, and you're, you're talking about these things and you're dividing the spoil of war and you're talking about everything that went down. But the exploits that we celebrate aren't our own exploits. It's the exploits of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who broke addictions off of us. It's Jesus Christ who has salvaged marriage. It's Jesus Christ who has restored relationships. It's his victory that we, that we split our spoil in. Because he overcame 
we get, we get, we get provision. The spoils of our war, of, the spoils of our war are freedom and joy and hope and faith and love and kindness and compassion. That's what I get to share with you. Because he conquered in this war against sin and death. You break the yoke of the burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as in the battle of Midian. You know, the, when you read the Bible, it should, it should raise questions in your mind. And so I, I hope that that's something that, that you're starting to capture kind of week in and week out, that when we come across something, we don't want to just assume what we know uh, or that we know what something is. The battle of Midian, you know, you're kind of like, you could just read over it and just be like, boom, battle of Midian. Like he's going to do it like at the battle of Midian. That's cool. So like probably some battle where they won. The battle of Midian was the one where Gideon took the army down from 10,000 soldiers all the way down to 300 soldiers. And they conquered thousands and thousands of soldiers with 300 men. Because God brought confusion on the enemy and they slaughtered one another. So what that means for us is that the joy is going to increase, gladness is going to increase, all of this light is coming to us, and God is going to destroy our enemies miraculously by bringing confusion even among our enemies. Now, that doesn't mean your boss. God's going to destroy the enemy of your boss when you pray for your boss, when it becomes one of your five that you're praying for. The enemy of your boss will be destroyed when you invite your boss to church. And your boss encounters the living God. And your boss experiences the same kind of transformation that, that hopefully you're beginning to experience in your own life. That's how God delivers us from the enemy of our boss, but the enemy of addiction. God can destroy, God can shatter. He'll just obliterate it mercilessly. The enemy of guilt and shame He'll put to shame. That's what sweet baby Jesus will do. That'd be a good sermon title. Don't use it. (laughs) Baby go boom. (laughs) Burdensome yoke. The yoke is what you put on oxen that they, that they, they pull up the plow and they plow the fields and stuff. So the yoke, it says that that's going to be, uh, that's going to be broken. And, this, and, and the rod of the oppressor, the, the rod that we're struck with, will be broken as well. To be replaced with a yoke that is easy. The yoke of Christ. Jesus came and said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can unpack what that means, but instead of striving for your own righteousness, you get to put on the righteousness of God. Instead of working to produce righteousness, we get to work because we're righteous. You see it? And in place of the rod of the oppressor, the one that will lash out on us and damage us for the sake of promoting itself, we now are led by the the rod and the staff of Jesus Christ, which is a comfort to us. In the 23rd Psalm, 
the psalmist speaks of your rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So even the discipline of God is a comforting force instead of an oppressive one. Some of us in this room have come into light. Some of us in this room have been led out of darkness. Some of us have not. Some of you maybe for the first time are beginning to see the light and you hear God calling you to walk on through. Don't sit down, pass through. Some of you have been sitting in darkness for a long time and, you're, and you feel the light of God shining on you today, drawing you out, giving you hope, giving you perspective, helping you understand that what God intends for you is far greater than what you're experiencing right now. 